Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. My guest today is provocative, insightful, and prolific. Roxanne Gay is the best-selling author and editor of many books, including her iconic essay collection, Bad Feminist, and most recently, Opinions, a decade of arguments, criticism, and minding other people's business. She is a contributing opinion writer for The New York Times, has a newsletter called The Audacity, and she's been an incredibly influential voice when it comes to social commentary, social justice, and popular culture over the last decade. Gay is coming to Iowa City this weekend as the keynote speaker for the Emma Goldman Clinic's 2024 Choice event at the Englert Theater on Saturday, February 3rd. And she is with me now. Roxanne Gay, welcome to the show. Hi, Charity. Thank you so much for having me. And I know before the pandemic, you were incredibly busy with a packed speaking schedule. The pandemic put that on pause like so many other things. Are you back to that kind of schedule where you're traveling all over the country and speaking again? It's getting there. Yes, things have picked back up since, uh, you know, we're not definitely the pandemic is not over, but we are definitely in a, a period where life is moving forward one way or another. And speaking engagements are starting to happen again in person, which I think is a good thing. And so, yeah, I'm getting back on the road and I just finished a book tour. So uh, it's a mix of book travel and, and speaking travel. And it's mostly a lot of fun. Well, that's good. And you're coming to speak uh, at the event hosted by the Emma Goldman Clinic. And I know that reproductive rights, abortion access is a big part of the reason that you've been invited to speak at that event. The Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade, the Dobbs decision, has been a galvanizing moment for many people. What was your reaction when it happened? My reaction, like many women's, I think was profound disappointment. It was in some ways surprising, but reproductive freedom activists have been warning us for quite some time that this could happen, and then it did. And so it was disappointing. And it was also really just disappointing to recognize that politicians had almost 50 years to codify Roe into law, and they didn't. And this is what happens when you don't pay attention and when you assume that the Supreme Court will act in the best interests of people. They won't, depending on who's on the court. So it's just very frustrating. And that's easy for me to say, too. I mean, I'm 49. So I am particularly heartbroken for women who are still of childbearing age and people with uteruses, because in certain states, they don't have any options. And a great many women now in this country are being forced to carry children that they don't want to term. And that's not good for them. And it's not good for the children. So it's just a shame all around. As soon as that decision came down, of course, there were many so-called trigger laws that went into effect. But we've also heard and seen these debates playing out in legislatures all over the country as different states negotiate 
what kind of restrictions they're going to put into place in their states. What have you learned from watching that process and hearing some of those arguments? One of the most interesting but unsurprising things has been how often these conversations are being led by men and how often there aren't any women in the room at all. And it it means that we haven't made as much progress as we should have at this point, that women are not included in conversations about our bodies, that our bodies are still legislated. Um, it's just, you know, it's really, it's frust- like frustrating is not even an adequate word. It's infuriating. And the conversations never change. They, you know, it's just about control and controlling women's bodies. And I think we have to resist that at every turn. And we have to insist that women are included in these conversations about our lives. You are a rape survivor, and you've written about that experience in a number of different ways and shared that over the years. You were only 12 years old when you were Mm -hmm. gang raped. And you did not become pregnant from that rape. But mm-hmm. as a as a rape survivor, does that color the way you think about these debates that are taking place? Because that, that very well could have been you as a pregnant 12-year-old mm-hmm. girl who would have been forced to bring a baby to term from one of your rapists. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. It that colors my perspective. I would be, um, you know, I was, I hadn't had my period yet. So I was just, I mean, I was very unlucky, but also I guess lucky. Um, and I can't imagine being forced to carry a child to term as a product of rape. It's, I think that's like a double sentence. So that in many states we're not even seeing legislatures create exceptions is even more infuriating than the fact that these bans are all over the place. Um, It's just terrible. And we should give people options about how and when they bring children into the world. And more importantly, we should also support people when they have those children. You know, we have a lot of people in a lot of states saying that abortion is wrong, and then they offer no social services for people to help in raising those children and to make sure that those children can be fed and educated properly. So the contradictions are overwhelming at times. I know that you've been to Iowa many times over the years, and you grew up in Nebraska, which we share a lot with our neighbor, Nebraska. Does does Iowa feel very similar to you culturally, politically to the to your home? Yes and no. Iowa is, I think, very similar to Nebraska. The difference is that Iowa has the caucuses, so they have a lot more political influence, I would say, than Nebraska. And it's not that politics are non-existent in Nebraska, but save for Omaha and perhaps Lincoln, there aren't a lot of sort of blue pockets, if you will. And so it's a very conservative place, as is Iowa. And, you know, we just don't feel, I think I grew up with knowing we were never as a state going to have real political influence. And so you kind of don't prioritize politics because you know that 
it's not really going to matter how you vote when you're liberal. I always vote, but you know, when I was in Nebraska, it was I always voted with the understanding that I was going to be in the minority in terms of how I was voting. One of the interesting things that we have seen since the Dobbs decision came down is uh, there have been a lot of people who have been motivated to vote to try to preserve abortion access in their states. And mm-hmm. this is not this is not actually something that's that strictly breaks down along party lines. I mean, in Iowa, we are a very conservative state, but over 50 percent of Iowans believe in abortion rights. So it's it's been interesting to watch people vote with that in mind. But it's also been interesting to see that in places where abortion or abortion access hasn't explicitly been on the ballot, we don't see that kind of influence, which makes me wonder about how informed people are. Yeah. I think that's a really good question. I don't know that people are as informed as they need to be. And actually, I know that people are not well informed. And we're seeing that play out in a lot of different ways. One, misinformation is rampant. And people who you would think are reasonably intelligent are believing the most ludicrous things. And, you know, starting with Pizzagate and going all the way up to Biden should be impeached for things that he has simply never done. So part of the blame definitely can be attributed to Fox News because they traffic in misinformation, as do a lot of the other conservative news networks. But part of the blame can also be attributed to other mainstream news outlets that never push back when certain public figures put misinformation into the world and allow them to sort of spew these ridiculous ideas that are not grounded in any kind of reality. And when you allow misinformation out, it's going to flourish. It just is. People love to believe ludicrous things. And I don't know how we develop a more informed electorate because it requires motivation on the part of each individual to do some learning and reading. And meanwhile, journalism is, I don't want to say journalism is dying, but I mean, in the past month, thousands of journalists have been laid off, not, it might be thousands, but at least hundreds of journalists have been laid off at major publications, including the Los Angeles Times. Um, Pitchfork has been moved under GQ. Um, Business Insider is doing a lot of layoffs. And on and on it goes. And so the fewer journalists we have, the fewer guarantees we have that accurate information is going to be put into the world. And that makes it even harder for the electorate to be well informed. There's also a a real disinterest in state and local politics. And right now, abortion access is a state issue. Yes, absolutely. And that's one of the biggest issues is that most people only focus on the federal elections and the presidential election at that and don't spend a lot of time thinking about ballot initiatives, school board races, sheriff's races, district attorney races, judges, and so on. And don't even look at their state politicians for state Congress, um, not state Congress, but state legislatures and 
governors, and that's where so much of the abortion legislation is happening, is in state houses. And certain state houses, even if there are Democrat governors, they're run by Republicans who are doing everything in their power to not only have their way politically, but to ensure that it stays that way when they're voted out of office. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm talking to Roxanne Gay. She is the best-selling author and editor of many books, including her iconic essay collection, Bad Feminist. She is coming to Iowa City this coming weekend. She'll be the keynote speaker for the Emma Goldman Clinic's 2024 Choice Event at the Englert Theater on Saturday, February 3rd. We will continue our conversation in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. You already know you carry all of your favorite podcasts in your pocket, but did you know you can carry all of Iowa Public Radio too? Just tell your phone to play Iowa Public Radio, News, Studio One, or Classical, Anytime for your favorite stream. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. With me today is Roxanne Gay. She is a writer. She is a social commentator. She is so many things, a professor. She is the best-selling author and editor of many books, including Bad Feminist, Most Recently, Opinions, A Decade of Arguments, Criticism, and Minding Other People's Business. She also has a newsletter called The Audacity. And she's coming to Iowa City this weekend as the keynote speaker for the Emma Goldman Clinic's 2024 choice event at the Englert Theater on Saturday, February 3rd. And Roxanne, I I have a confession to make, and that's when, before this interview, I didn't realize that you and I are basically the same age. We're only a couple of months apart. And um, when I read Bad Feminist, you were talking about all of the, the ideas about feminism that you heard when you were growing up. And I thought, gosh, I heard all those same things. Was it still the same 10 years later? And then I realized, oh, yeah, it was the same because we were growing up at the same time, only a few hundred miles apart. But how would you describe your understanding of feminism when you were growing up in Omaha, Nebraska? Well, in many ways, and I, I write about this in Bad Feminist, it, it was not any part of my life. It never even came up. And so I didn't really begin to even hear about feminism or know that it existed until high school and college. Um, my mom, I certainly think of as a feminist, and to this day, she refuses to claim that she is, but she's the most feminist person I've ever met. <laughs> uh, you know, she certainly modeled what feminism can and should be, but the language of feminism was not really used. And so I was adrift about a lot of things concerning feminism. And then, of course, by the time I did hear about it, I often thought, oh, that's not for me. I don't, you know, I don't want to be seen as a man hater, even though I'm fine with it now. Um, You know, so it was just an interesting learning curve. Yeah, well, it was uh, you were growing up a first generation American. Your parents both immigrated to the United States from Haiti, which may have been part of that that sort of separation from even the idea of feminism. You and I had very different backgrounds. But I do remember that it was a dirty word in so many ways. When I was in high school or college, even if you 
shared the beliefs that are sort of basic feminist ideals, people did not want to say that's what they were. Absolutely. Which really lets you know what's at stake, that we're afraid to claim personhood, our right to move through the world freely without harm, our right to bodily autonomy, our right to equal pay, our right to um, make choices that won't end up punishing us in the end. Like, for example, uh, staying out of the traditional workplace to raise a family. Uh, There should be support for women to make that choice without having to end up destitute if and when that marriage ends. So the fact that we don't want to claim the word feminism, that it seems too dangerous, that it seems like a problem, really lets you know that the people who have created that culture where we are afraid to claim feminism are deeply invested in disempowering us and making sure that we disempower ourselves. Also during that time, I remember that there were a lot of second wave feminists who were frustrated with women our age, saying Mm -hmm. that we took everything for granted. They fought so hard for these rights and and we just took it for granted. Now, I'm I'm the mother of an 18 year old, so I like the fact that there are some things that she can take for granted that her grandmother couldn't. Um, Although, obviously, there have been some things that have changed pretty dramatically in the last couple of years. Um, but but that is an interesting problem that when progress is made, at least women of privilege were able to take those advances for granted. Absolutely. I, you know, it's interesting. And, and I remember many of that those conversations quite well that second feminists, second wave feminists were having. And I understood their disappointment, but at the same time, I thought that means you did your job. That means that like you, the fight that you fought was well worth it. We should want people to be able to take rights for granted. Yes, you should take for granted that you have the right to um, reproductive freedom, that you have the right to equal pay and all of the other things that uh, we want for ourselves as women. And so I always, whenever I see young people taking their rights for granted, on the one hand, I do want them to appreciate the struggles that our forebearers fought through to achieve those rights. But at the same time, it's like, you know what, that's great that you get to focus on other things, because that means that maybe we've accomplished something. Yeah, I do give a lot of boring speeches (laughs) about it to both of my kids, for sure. (laughs) Yeah, I do that with my students. And sometimes they just look at me like, what are you talking about? (laughs) And I think, well, you know what? This is how it's supposed to be. This is fine. So how do you, I mean, some people say there's a fourth wave of feminism. Some people say that this is the continuation of the third wave, whatever. I don't really care about that. But how do you see feminism right now? You know, I think feminism is evolving as it always does and as it always should. In some ways, we're having the same old conversations and we're fighting for the very basic things, but I think we're also having more sophisticated and more nuanced debates about what feminism is and what we should be doing to achieve feminist goals. I don't know what, I don't think that the waves thing particularly matter. Like you, I'm not at all concerned with waves. I'm actually just concerned with doing the work of feminism and not worrying about labeling it so much. 
because really it's achieving progress that matters most because there's just, again, so much at stake. Um, but yeah. There are people who see tension between what they refer to as feminism and the movement for trans rights and acknowledgement of trans people. Do you see a tension there? No, I don't. I think that the fight for trans rights is the fight for women's rights. It's the fight and, and that trans women are women. You know, there there is no tension there. I think that either we fight for all of us or we fight for none of us. The idea that we should separate these battles and that they can be separated is, I think, creating a false dichotomy that does not serve any of us. And so I think it's more useful for us to look at how do we align and how do we work together, even if we have different goals? So how how do you communicate that in the midst of all of these culture wars that we have going on? I mean, there, there's so it feels like there's so much effort to divide people who may fundamentally agree with each other. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we have to resist those. We have to resist those divisions. Just because people want us to be at war with one another, that they want us judging each other's lives and identities, we don't have to play that game. We don't have to let them dictate the terms of engagement. And so, I try to resist that at all times, and to recognize that there are certain debates that I actually don't even need to engage in because they're not fruitful. And we don't have to explain ourselves. We don't have to justify our lives. And so I just try to opt out of any conversations that would delegitimize my existence or the existence of anyone else, um, because we shouldn't have to prove that we deserve to be free and alive and that we even exist for, you know, oftentimes people would like to erase trans people from the world. And that's never, ever going to happen. And why would you want that? So I just try to keep that in mind that we are all fighting a similar struggle and solidarity always works. I'm talking with writer Roxanne Gay. And you have a a unique view because you spent many years as a professor, many years in the classroom teaching millennials and Gen Z students. Do, do you feel I mean, obviously, we cannot we cannot group all of them together. But do you feel like there's an engagement from young people right now in in an understanding of feminism and an understanding of of why they maybe should care a little bit about politics? Yes, I do. I do. I, I think it's really important to recognize that young people are very politically aware, even if they don't have the politics that we'd like them to have. Um, And that's also fine. They just, I think, express themselves differently. I think they get their news differently um, for better and worse. And so it's how do we meet young people where they are instead of trying to, you know, force 
our understanding of the world on them. I, again, I think that we have a lot in common and I think that we can find common ground and we can also respect each other's points of view and where we're each coming from without trying to change each other. You know, I think a lot of times people think I need you to I need to convince you of what I believe and of what I think in order for us to be able to have a rapport. And I, I don't think that's necessary. What I do think is necessary is mutual respect. And so I try to start from that place, both in and beyond the classroom. And I find that it helps. Mutual respect is a hard thing to find in the world of social media, for example. And I, I know you were a force on Twitter for a very long time. And obviously, Twitter has changed to X and you are using that platform very little these days. Um, but just looking at the social media landscape, it feels like we're moving away from conversation. You know, when I see, uh, and I know I'm I'm an old person who uses Instagram now, so probably young people don't turn to Instagram. <laughs> but, you know, when I see the, the movement toward communicating in in one minute reels or in even shorter TikTok videos, there seems to be less room for exchange. Do you see that movement? I, I think that, yes, we do see some calcification. We do see a lot of people who believe what they believe and they're not interested in any sort of exchange of ideas. And generally, we see this on the extremes. And the reality is that most people do not exist on the extremes. And social media is not an accurate reflection of the broader population. And it's really important to keep that in mind. It's actually one of the many reasons that I, I left Twitter. Um, I didn't delete my account because I didn't feel the need to, but I don't post there anymore for so many reasons. But Partly, it's the polarization, it's the rampant anti-Semitism, transphobia, homophobia, anti-Blackness. I mean, the list is so long, and it's allowed to flourish. And um, and it's Elon encouraged, and not all of it's coming from, right, not all of it's coming from real human beings either. Obviously, there's there's a Correct. whole bot culture as well. Exactly. And so, like, why do I want to spend my time in an environment that is just so horrible and so unpleasant. And I think it like when you do spend too much time in those kinds of environments, you do start to think that that's normal and that's what everyone's thinking and that all hope is lost. And then you sort of go spend some time in the real world and you realize, okay, it's not that social media isn't the real world, but it isn't necessarily an accurate reflection of how people are in, in interacting in the world away from social media. Do you think people should get off social media? I wouldn't say that. I I mean, I think social media at its best has a lot to offer. It's a great way of connecting with others. So I think that people should just be mindful of the things that they say and do on social media and mindful of the policies of the social media organizations and what they allow and decide, do you really want to contribute your time, energy, and other things to communities that are toxic? But there are, I think, healthier social media networks 
Instagram can be pretty fun, though it has its own set of challenges. I, I'm on Blue Sky now, which is, you know, it's not perfect, but it sometimes feels like Twitter at its best when you see people having conversations grounded in like reality and free of death threats. So, you know, there are some good things to be found in other places. I want to talk a little bit more about feminism today because one of the the great criticisms of feminism through the years with a lot of validity is that it, it was not very intersectional, that you mm-hmm. know, especially looking at, let's say, second wave feminism, that was a movement that was largely privileged white women who wanted more out of their lives. And, and a lot of women of color were thinking, wait, you want to work? We've all we've been working. <laughs> we, we're already doing yeah. that. This is not about us. Um, do you see feminism today as more intersectional, more representational? I think it's certainly getting there. I think it's probably much better than it ever has been, which I think, I mean, low bar, very low bar, but we are seeing a lot more kinds of people engaging in feminism. We're seeing a lot more diverse voices and and, and diversity is not just black and white. We're seeing Uh, A lot of Latino voices, Native American voices, and other indigenous voices. We're seeing people from different walks of life. We're seeing a lot of working class movements that are doing some really thrilling feminist work. And that's so important. We're seeing disabled activists engaging in feminist movements. It's, It's everyone. And so... It's, is it where it needs to be? No. But is it much better than it ever has been? Yes. Well, and I certainly, growing up, I never heard a man identify as feminist. And now that's relatively common to hear people who identify as men also identify as feminist. Yes. And that's good. And, you know, hopefully we will see more men really, and more people, quite frankly, um, claiming feminism and recognizing the importance because feminism is not about, you know, and I can't even believe it needs to be said, but it's not about sort of taking anything away from men. It's about making sure that everyone, regardless of gender, has equity. And the more that men recognize that and recognize that they have a lot of work to do in this movement, I think the better off and the more progress we'll see. We're going to take another short break. I'm talking with Roxanne Gay. She is the best-selling author and editor of many books, including Bad Feminist. Her most recent book is called Opinions, A Decade of Arguments, Criticism, and Minding Other People's Business. She's also a contributing opinion writer for The New York Times and writes in many other places as well. She is coming to Iowa City this weekend and is the keynote speaker for the Emma Goldman Clinic's 2024 Choice event. It's at the Englert Theater on Saturday, February 3rd. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. You already know you carry all of your favorite podcasts in your pocket. But did you know you can carry all of Iowa Public Radio too? Just tell your phone to play Iowa Public Radio, News, Studio One, or Classical, anytime for your favorite stream. 
It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Today I am talking with Roxanne Gay. She is a prolific writer and really iconic, especially over the last 10 years. Her work has been at the center of a lot of really important conversations in our culture. She's the author of the essay collection, Bad Feminist. Her most recent book is called Opinions, A Decade of Arguments, Criticism, and Minding Other People's Business. She's a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. Her newsletter is called The Audacity, and she's coming to Iowa City this weekend. She'll be the keynote speaker for the Emma Goldman Clinic's 2024 Choice Event at the Englert Theater on Saturday, February 3rd. And we've talked a lot about feminism and social justice for women, people who identify as women. I do want to talk, and we were talking about feminism being more intersectional now, but we also need to talk about racial justice in this country. For the death, there's so much that has happened over the last decade when your voice has been such a prominent part of these conversations. And some people see what happened from Obama to Trump as kind of a pendulum swinging where there was a movement in one direction and movement in the other direction. Do you see it that way? Do you see it as backsliding? What how what is your view of racial justice, racial relations in this country? I definitely think that the rise of Trump can absolutely be attributed to uh, the pendulum swinging. And I I think it was a reaction by people who were in whatever way threatened by a Black president. It feels in many ways like punishment, like, oh, you you got a Black president, look what we're going to do next. Um, and, and things are not great in terms of race relations. I, I, again, I think that you have to look well beyond social media and in general, you see people living their lives. You see communities that are at peace, but we live in a really segregated world and we don't see, I don't, you know, see a lot of work being done to address that kind of segregation. And a lot of the challenges that communities of color have been contending with remain. And we're seeing a lot of ground being lost, particularly as people attack diversity, equity, and inclusion and demonize it and treat it like it's a bad thing when really what it is is about achieving equity and creating a vaguely fair environment for people to try and thrive in. And we, again, we have to, I think people who are liberal and who have liberal politics have to push back when people try to demonize movements that create equity. And when they try to use straw man arguments about, oh, my friend Tom didn't get a promotion and because he's a 45-year-old white guy, And it's like, yeah, maybe that's not enough for him to get a promotion. Maybe Tom should have a little something else going on, like being great at his job. Um, You know, and so I think we have to not legitimize their terms of engagement and not allow them to sort of set the tone. Like we when we engage in a lot of these discussions, we engage in them as if what they're saying is legitimate. (laughs) And it's not. And so 
That that is interesting to me because I mean, so for example, this um, the debate over critical race theory. I I watched that play out, and part of part part of what baffled me about it is. There's, you know, on the right, people saying, oh, teaching critical race theory is wrong. And then on the left, there were a lot of people saying, no, it's fine because of this, this and this, instead of saying, we don't teach that in elementary school. We don't teach that in junior high. We don't teach that in high school. And it felt like the debate was about the wrong thing. Absolutely. You know, uh, progressive and liberal communities are, are doing a not great job of taking command of the discourse. Conservatives control the discourse every time. They've created the phrase identity politics, culture war, and then they make political discussions about these things that are not really the concerns of people um, most of the time. Most of the time, what people want is to be able to have safe housing, access to good food and clean water. They want to be able to work for a fair wage and support their families and maybe get an education without going broke, maybe have a healthcare crisis without having to become bankrupt. These are things that people want. And yet the political discourse is always about all of these very inflammatory topics that make the world seem a lot more divided than it is. And I'm not going to suggest that the world isn't divided and that this country in particular isn't divided. It is. But um, those divisions are largely created by people who think that we should not try and change the discourse and we should sort of play it on their terms. The critical race theory nonsense was one of the weirdest things to witness when people, exactly like what you said, Charity, started to act like this is something that kindergartners are learning about. It's not even, people in college aren't even learning about it. It was until Christopher Rufo and his friends um, made it a target, a, a sort of very specialized area of intellectual inquiry for academics. And now, of course, it's all over the place. So... You know, it just kind of feels sometimes quite hopeless, but I do hope that we can course correct and have more productive political conversations about things that actually matter in people's day-to-day lives. You have made no secret about the fact that you considered this moment leading up to the next presidential election as a really pivotal point and that you believe that Trump is and was extremely destructive to our democracy and other things as well. I I am curious to go back to talking about these younger generations and their engagement with politics and what they're seeing. I I don't see a lot of young people who are really excited about Joe Biden. Why should they be? So what is exciting about Joe Biden? You know, I agree. I mean, and it's really distressing to me. But at the same time, like, I think we should not gaslight young people into thinking that he's an exciting candidate that they should sort of be passionate about. He has not really given them reason to be passionate. On the other hand, I will also say that Biden is not getting enough credit for some of the really great things that he has done over the past three and a half years. And that's a shame. And again, it comes back to messaging. The Democrats are just terrible at messaging. 
the economy is thriving. And the fact that that is not on the front page of every newspaper every single day, and that many Americans believe the economy is not thriving, is such a, a just a shame. And so it, it's challenging. But when you look at the issues that young people care about, how are they going to afford a home someday? How are they going to pay for an education? And what are we going to do on the sort of global in the global landscape? Is there going to be a stop to the war in Gaza? Are we going to do anything about the 30,000 plus people that have been killed, half of which are children? You know, young people do care about these things. And unfortunately, as of yet, the Biden administration does not have an adequate answer for them. It doesn't even acknowledge that they have these questions and concerns. And the Democrat the Democrats in general are doing nothing to suggest that we even have a different set of candidates to look at for, I mean, 2024, we already know it's going to be Biden. Okay. What are we going to do in 2028? And how do we have no one under the age of like 80 to suggest to young people as a viable political candidate who might know a little bit more about their lives and their concerns? It's a disgrace. And so I don't fault them. I do, though, think we have to do everything in our power to vote for Joe Biden this time, because not voting is not the solution and will not achieve anything. I'm talking with Roxanne Gay, writer, commentator, and I want to change topics. I want to talk about books because I know that you are also you are a writer of books, but you are a lover of books. You've read a lot of books. You've written a lot about books that you love and read. And something else that we're experiencing right now is a movement to ban or challenge or restrict, remove books from schools and classrooms and libraries. You yourself have been banned many times, right? Mm-hmm. Including in Iowa. So I, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on on what you see happening in that movement and why do you think that this is such a, a powerful focus right now? Because it's hard to, this may sound naive, but it's hard to imagine that anybody is looking at our culture and saying the problem is that kids are reading too much. But so what what are you seeing? Well, you know, it's actually similar to a lot of the other political debates that are ongoing in this country. It's about autonomy and allowing people choices. And again, it also speaks to an informed electorate. An informed electorate is always not is always going to vote, you know, smartly, whether we agree with those voting choices or not. An uninformed electorate is going to not demand that you give them policy specifics. They're not going to demand that you change the status quo. And so banning books is really one of the key things that you can do to guarantee that we have an uninformed electorate. And the kinds of books that are being banned in general are books that challenge the status quo and suggest that there are problems in this world. And so I think that we have to highlight what book banning is, how pernicious it is, and we have to resist it in every way that we can. 
I was just, uh, I'm rereading The Color Purple by Alice Walker, which uh, is a book that has been removed from Iowa classrooms. It is now back in many Iowa classrooms while there's a, a lawsuit going on um, because the legislation that removed it is on hold. But in rereading the book, I mean, I, because these are, the sex in a book is not necessarily the thing that you remember. So it's been a lot of years and I went back and I realized, okay, so this book opens with a young woman who is repeatedly raped by her father and becomes pregnant by her father. And that's one of the things that is getting this book removed from Iowa schools. But then I also think about how many survivors of sexual assault there are, how many children are survivors of sexual assault, of incest. And that because I was reading it and preparing for this interview at the same time, it made me think about you as a 12-year-old girl in Omaha, Nebraska. And after you had been raped, I mean, you really didn't have an understanding of what had happened to you. And, and it feels so important that there are these opportunities in literature to see that representation, but also empathize through fiction with what has happened there. Absolutely. You know, the idea that we can sort of deny reality by banning these kinds of books is really kind of ludicrous. The reality is that children do experience these things. They do. And why would we pre pretend otherwise? Um, I think it's up to parents. If a parent doesn't want their child to read that book, then that's the personal choice for them and their family. I 100% respect that. But our elected officials should not be making these decisions for entire communities. It's a family decision. And um, the reality is that kids know a lot more than we give them credit for. And pretending that the world doesn't have problems isn't somehow going to make them better people. So I understand that not every book would thrill every person, but it should be a personal decision and not a public decision. You grew up as a first-generation Haitian-American in the Midwest. I'm sure there weren't a lot of people with your background surrounding you um, when you were in Omaha. Do you remember when you first saw yourself in represented in fiction or in a book? Oh, in high school, for sure. Um, well, I, I, that's partly true. When I was growing up, I loved Little House on the Prairie. I loved those books. I, and I still do, even though I, I also recognize now that they have quite a few problems. But when I was growing up, I loved reading this book about a little girl from the prairie who was just an ordinary girl. But I also found her to be quite extraordinary. And it made me think, wow, maybe I could do that too. Maybe I could write stories about an ordinary girl from the Midwest, because uh, that's me. And then I saw more direct representation when I was in high school and I started reading Toni Morrison and, you know, The Bluest Eye, Sula, Beloved. And again, it wasn't that it was a direct parallel to my life. It wasn't, but it was one of the first times when I read books that featured Black women characters. And that was really world opening for me. 
and quite wonderful. And it's a shame that it took that long. And some of the characters in those books had experienced the kind of trauma you had experienced. Was that part of a, a healing process for you? Um, I think it was definitely the start of a healing process to recognize I wasn't alone, that this terrible thing that had happened, I was not you know, the only person who had experienced that. Um, because, you know, when you keep a secret and you don't know um, that these kinds of things happen to other people, you can start to feel like this is just something that happened to you. And that can be a really lonely thing. So it was really helpful to know that I wasn't alone, that this had happened to other people, that perhaps, um, I don't even know how to phrase it, but to know that maybe there was something on the other side of it too, that there's a way that you could survive it and get through it. Roxanne Gay, we are out of time, but thank you so much for talking with me today. Well, thank you for having me again. I appreciate it. Writer and commentator Roxanne Gay. She'll be coming to Iowa City this weekend as the keynote speaker for the Emma Goldman Clinic's 2024 Choice Event at the Englert Theater on Saturday, February 3rd. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. Our producers are Caitlin Troutman, Danny Gear, and Samantha McIntosh. We get production assistance from Kate Paris and Maddie Willis. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is Talk of Iowa.